You guys can have a seat. Welcome. Man, the, the Bengals keep on winning. How about that? Yeah, right? This is fun, fun stuff as a Bengals fan. Um, but I, I'm thankful to be here this morning to be able to worship with you guys. Um, this is a time in the service that I get the opportunity to just open up God's word and teach and share it with you. Uh, and I'm thankful for that. I'm excited about that because if I get the chance to do that, it means that this morning I might have the opportunity to change somebody's life with God working through his word as it's preached. And that's pretty cool. And I'm actually confident that that will happen because I know that God's word is powerful. I know that God's word, uh, when we really listen to it and, and uh, let it come into our hearts, has the opportunity to change our lives and to change the world around us. And so that's why we take so much time at church each week to really try to just get into his word and see what it says and how we're supposed to apply it. And if we want to properly understand God's word uh, and we want to apply it correctly, then the first thing that we need to do is actually understand what it meant to its original hearers. Right? So, so right now we're going through this uh, book of Romans, which we call the book of Romans. It's actually a letter. It's a really long letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Rome. And he's talking to them a lot about a lot of different issues. Uh, but by and large, this overarching theme that we've seen is the gospel. And so we've titled this series, Romans, The Power of the Gospel. We've seen uh, that the gospel has the power to save us. It has the power to unite us with God. It has the power to unite us with each other. Now, this letter is about 2,000 years old. So this morning as we're reading, we're actually going to be reading somebody else's mail from about only a couple millennia ago. Um, which might seem strange, but if you've been with us for any portion of time, I hope that you've seen that even though this might be really old, it might have been written to a certain audience, that it's still God's word for us today, and that it still has the opportunity to be very powerful. And so my goal this morning, as is every morning that I preach, is simply to glorify God by teaching you his word and helping you understand what it means and then helping you see how that can be lived out and applied in our lives. So let's pray, and then uh, we'll hop into what I've got for this morning. God, we love you, and uh, just thank you that you're worthy of being praised. God, I, I love the fact that uh, we get to come here every Sunday, and uh, we get to just lift up our voices to you like we just were. Like, singing praises that, that you're worthy of, of every crown that we have. God, that, that you're the lion and the lamb, you're, you're strong and you're mighty, yet you're, you're tender, and you, you invite us to come to you like children and to actually be your children. God, there's no one like you. There's no one that can compare to you. And um, I just pray, Lord, that you would capture our hearts more this morning. Lord, capture our hearts more every day. I pray you'd make us people that uh, are, are like the psalmist that just love to proclaim uh, your glory, that even talk about how like the skies pour forth speech about your greatness. And the heavens are the work of your hands, Lord. You uh, are awesome. You're big, you're great. You're, you're so much more than all the other things that um, can so often occupy our minds. And so God, we thank you for uh, your grace and your patience with us. And we pray this morning, Lord, that you would just uh, shape us and, and mold us more into the people that you want us to be, God. Uh, we love you and we thank you that you're here with us. We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. 
All right, so right now, we are in the middle of a particularly difficult section in Romans, uh, Romans chapters 9 through 11, and that's just how we've organized it. When Paul wrote Romans, he didn't actually have it in chapters and verses. That stuff was all added into your Bibles later, uh, but it's helpful for us in kind of navigating it if we want to reference things. So right now, we're in Romans 9 through 11, and uh, the first eight chapters of Romans, uh, we've really seen this unfolding of the gospel message that I was talking about. And uh, quite simply, what we've, we've seen, if I can put it in a nutshell, is that we are all sinners. It doesn't matter what kind of background you come from, what ethnicity you are, anything like that. Uh, you are a sinner that has fallen short of God's glory. You, you don't live up to his standard of righteousness. Uh, we've seen that this is actually a major problem that results in death. Like, sin is what's caused all the brokenness in the world. <clears throat> it's what causes our death and our separation from the Lord. And we've seen that there's one solution to this problem. There's one solution to this problem, and that solution is Jesus, that, that Jesus came and that he died on the cross for our sin, paying the penalty that we owe for all of the, the wrong that we've done, taking the curse that we deserve for our sin upon himself, and that he rose from the dead, showing that, that he's defeated the curse of sin and death and that he gives eternal life to all that would come to him in faith. That's the, the gospel message, this idea that we were broken and far off from God, but now because of the work of Christ, if we put our faith in him, we can be brought back together with him for eternity. And now this is all like great news. That, that is the basis of everything that we've seen. And Romans, we, we get through this. Uh, by chapter 8, Paul is kind of just even laying out how awesome this is. And then right then at, at the beginning of 9, we see this kind of strange uh, statement where he talks about how he's in anguish. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. <clears throat> and even though he was sharing all this great stuff, the reason he has anguish in his heart is because as good of a, a message as the gospel is, there are a lot of people that don't believe it. And so even though Christ has done what is necessary for our salvation, there are so many that still haven't responded. And particularly, the people that Paul speaks about being in anguish over are his fellow countrymen, the Jews. You see, Paul was a Jew, also known as, uh, as an Israelite. And uh, I talked a lot about kind of who the Israelites were last week. I'm, I'm not, I don't have time to do all that again this week. Um, but basically, just to let you know, Israel is God's, what we call, covenant people. There are people that God had made a special relationship with. If you read the Old Testament in your Bible, the vast majority of it, you're going to be tracking the story of Israel and how they're interacting with God. And we see that he's made all these different kinds of promises to them. And everybody else that's not a part of Israel is who we call Gentiles. So you have Jews, which are the Israelites, and then you have Gentiles, which is everybody else, and most of us probably in this room. Um... So with that being said, even though the Jews had this special relationship with God, for some reason most of them were not believing in the gospel and coming to faith in Christ. Jesus was actually their Messiah. Like, Jesus was Jewish. A lot of time we forget that. All the apostles were Jewish. All of the first Christians were Jewish. It was the Jewish scriptures that were actually the Bible of the early church. And so despite all of this, despite the, the amazing, wonderful nature of the gospel message, so many of them were not coming to faith. And not only this, but Gentiles who come from this pagan background where they're worshiping a pantheon of gods and uh, they're living in just all sorts of sin and, and um, just really like outward, very sinful type stuff that uh, Paul talks about in Romans 1, we see that these people are actually coming to know God in droves. And 
it leaves us with this question of if Israel is God's special covenant people and he's made all these promises to them, how is it that so many of them are not saved? And this might not seem important to you, but it actually matters a lot because God's faithfulness and trustworthiness are what come into question here, right? The, the thinking is if God has made all of these awesome promises to the Jews and yet you're telling me that you have to believe in the gospel to be forgiven of sin, united with, with Christ, and most of the Jews don't believe that, that means that most of them are not going to inherit these blessings that, that God has promised. And so that's really what launches us into this section of Romans 9 through 11, okay? Paul is trying to help us understa understand how God is indeed faithful to the promises that he's made, which is important, because if God's not faithful, then there's no point in us trusting anything that he says. But Paul is emphatically showing us that God is faithful to his promises. So in a nutshell, what we saw last week is that just being an ethnic Israelite doesn't mean that you are automatically a recipient of all of God's promises to Israel. Paul said, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. God has regularly, regularly worked in a way where he chose one over another for something. And some might protest that this is not fair, um, but since God is the creator, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's all-wise, he has the right to be able to operate in whatever way he chooses. And that includes choosing some people for certain things, to show mercy, and, and choosing others even that he may harden their hearts. And in fact, Paul also goes on to say that um, God even told us that these unexpected things would be coming. That there was going to be this time where the Gentiles, these people that seemed to be outside of the people of God, were actually going to come to know him. And so that's kind of what we saw last week. That brings us up to where we are uh, today. With that being said, I'm going to pick it up at Romans chapter 9, verse 30, and uh, read into chapter 10, the first few verses. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. All right, we're going to stop there for right now. What we see happening is uh, that the Gentiles, as I was saying, who did not know God's law or anything like that, they were living in total sin before they heard the gospel, uh, end up coming to faith in Christ as the gospel is preached. And they realize that, wow, uh, God is offering me righteousness and forgiveness of my sin based on the work that Jesus did on the cross. They hear this, they respond to the gospel, and they come in faith. And th that the Israelites, despite trying to keep the law, right, like they're actually doing the best they can uh, to, to actually follow God's law. He's given them all these commandments, and many of them are working really hard to do this. And yet, despite that, we learn that they're actually not counted as righteous. And, and so that kind of like 
seems wrong on some level, right? Like, like you have these people over here that are doing everything they can to try and actually do the right thing and, and live the way that God told them to, and they're not counted as righteous. And then you have these Gentiles over here who were just living wild and crazy, and they hear the gospel, and all of a sudden they're counted as righteous because they come in faith. And Paul's like, yeah, that, that's what's happening. Why? Why, why is that? You see, the, the gospel can actually be a stumbling block for people sometimes. This idea that we are saved by God's grace and not by our own works, that is really, really hard for a lot of us to buy. It's hard for us to believe on one sense just because it seems unfair or too good to be true or whatever. We have some sort of issue with it like that. And in another sense, sometimes it almost even rubs against our sense of justice. Like, if, if we were trying to decide, wait, who's the good person, who's the person that, that deserves eternal life or blessing or anything like that, we'd probably say, oh, the guy over here that's, that's trying to follow God's law and do all these kind of good things. And that's not to say that the Gentiles who came to know Christ didn't have their lives transformed later, but they were counted righteous as soon as they put their faith in Christ. And frankly, that can be a stumbling block for people. This idea that we can't establish our righteousness on our own, but that we need it for Jesus. And that's what Paul's saying has happened here, is that the Jews have stumbled over this stumbling block. Why? They, they were trying to establish their own righteousness by following the law, meaning that uh, they thought that they could be righteous in God's eyes simply by being the best person that they could. And frankly, that's the attitude that I think most of us live with. Even people that I talk to on campus, a lot of the time that tell me they're Christians, they don't believe the gospel. They, they, they believe in a works-based righteousness. And they, they tell me that what it means to be a Christian is that uh, you treat others the way you want to be treated, and you try and be a good person and love everybody. And yeah, that, that's part of being a Christian, but that's not the essence of what it is. And if you teach me that, you're, you're telling me you think that your righteousness is established by your works, and, and the Bible rails against that. We cannot establish righteousness by our own works, right? No matter how hard we try. It's not like the Jews weren't trying, okay? Look at what we read in that passage. Paul says that I can attest they have zeal. What that means is that, that they were committed, like they had fervor. It's, it's not like they weren't taking it seriously. They had zeal, but it was without knowledge, right? So they, they were, they were gung-ho, but what was the knowledge that they were missing, the knowledge that they were missing is that they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. That's what the text tells us. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. What I think he's getting at here is that they simply could not grasp how righteous God is and how far short we fall of that. And consequently to see that the only way that we could possibly be righteous is to be given righteousness by God. You see, so many of our problems stem from the fact that we have such a small view of who God is. Our God is very small. We, we don't see him as great as he is. We don't see him as powerful as he is. We don't see him as holy as he is. And so naturally we think, well, yeah, as long as I can be like a pretty good person, certainly that should gain me access into his presence and into living with him for eternity. But guys, the, God's righteousness is, is so much greater than that. You look at this, a lot of us as Christians, we suffer actually from, from not knowing our Old Testament very well. And I think sometimes we miss out on seeing how holy and righteous God is. You see, when, when the temple was built, 
Like, there was this special place where God's presence would dwell, and nobody was allowed to go into that place. If you did, it was like, you're going to get struck dead. That, that's how holy and fearful God is. Like, God is, God is described as being a consuming fire. It's terrifying to be in his presence because of how holy and righteous he is. You see that uh, Isaiah, when he came to real, uh, he had this vision, even, of God in, in his throne room. And, and what he says is, you know, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a, a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And he realizes, I have no business being in this place. I am not worthy because of how righteous God is. You know, if we come to see this, we come to see how good and holy and powerful and awesome God is, we would come to see that we cannot establish our own righteousness. You can try as hard as you can. You can have zeal, like the Jews that they did here, to try, to try and establish your righteousness, but it's not going to work. It's hard for us to accept the need for Christ to give us righteousness, but this is the only way that we can be made righteous. In this passage, we essentially see put forth two different ways that people are trying to attain righteousness. One is to, to prove your righteousness before God by following the law, and that is not ever going to work. The other is to put your faith in Jesus and be made righteous by God's grace. And that is what the Gentiles were doing, and that is why they were being saved. This is what Christians do, what all Christians, Jews or Gentiles, doesn't matter your ethnicity, if you are a Christian, you are someone that trusts in Jesus for your righteousness and not yourself. If you don't trust in Jesus for your righteousness, you are not a Christian, regardless of what you classify yourself as. So let's read on here to see how this idea is expanded upon. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The righteousness that's based on the law would require you to live by it, essentially meaning that you have to follow every commandment perfectly. As I've already stated many times, you can't do that. The righteousness that's based on faith is different. The righteousness that comes by faith is something that's given to us by Jesus. And you know, Paul goes into this language here where he starts talking about, don't say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, who will come down... I thought about how to handle this. There's, Paul's actually quoting and alluding to the Old Testament quite a bit in this passage. I tried to figure out how to, to put it in this sermon, and I think it would have just muddled it and made it confusing. Uh, but if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, 11 to 14, you'll actually see some very similar language uh, that Moses is using. Um, and Paul kind of starts to, to take that language here and, and use it in the same, in a somewhat similar way, but a somewhat different way. 
But essentially what he's communicating is that the righteousness that comes by faith is not something that you have to like go up into heaven to get, okay? <clears throat> you don't have to like find some ladder, go up, try and find God and, and, and bring Christ down to, to be able to get righteousness. Christ took it upon himself to come down. It's not something that you have to descend into the abyss to get. You don't have to make some sort of like cosmic journey or something to be able to try to figure out how to attain righteousness. Christ himself chose to come down and he rose from the dead out of the depths. He's already gone, gone the lengths of everywhere that you could possibly try to go. Jesus has done what we could not do and through his work, we can be saved by faith. You see, rather than us having to go and try and uh, attain our righteousness in some way, it's actually been brought right before us. It's right here. You know, this is what uh, John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh <clears throat> and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Guys, if you want to be perfectly righteous before God, you don't have to hike Mount Everest. You don't have to go to a special temple. You don't have to do some sort of pilgrimage or anything like that. The, the opportunity for righteousness has actually been put right before you in Jesus. He's dwelt among us. And so we see that rather than uh, going on some great journey or doing some great works or something like that, what we actually need to do is confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. To be saved by Christ, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And we can tell from the whole testimony of Scripture, this is not some sort of like magic incantation here, okay? He's not trying to be like, yeah, just say these magic words and this will save you. Uh, I think that what, what he's getting at here is this idea of truly confessing. And, and even there, I told you he's alluding to this Deuteronomy chapter 30 language where it has stuff about... Uh, mouth and heart and that kind of thing. But what I think that Paul is, is, is ultimately trying to help us understand is if you're going to have righteousness by faith, you have to actually confess that Jesus is your Lord. Not just say it with your words, but there, there's a true heart posture even that you have that understands that Jesus is your Lord. You, you come to realize that you're not able to save yourself. You come to realize that you need to, to put your faith in him. And with that, you're going to follow him. All right, Jesus in Matthew 16, 24 to 25 said, it says, then Jesus uh, told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. <laughs> Going up. Um, <laughs> and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So this is what we're getting at with this idea of confessing Jesus as Lord. Like losing your life for the sake of Christ. It doesn't mean necessarily physically being martyred. It just means this idea that I'm no longer king of my own life. Jesus is. And believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Faith in the resurrection is absolutely essential for salvation. The resurrection is actually what dominated the preaching of the early church. And the resurrection is what shows that our sin is actually paid for and that the curse of sin and death has been overcome by Christ. The only way to actually have righteousness before God is to confess and believe. And it's through this faith that the righteousness of Christ is actually given to you. I know I've shared this verse many times, but I'm going to share it again. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the righteousness by faith. 
that we receive it in Christ. And so the question for you is, will you call on him? Right? Like we, we see here from the scripture that all who call on him will be saved. It's, it's not about your works. It's not about a pilgrimage. It's not about anything like that. Jesus has come. He's offered salvation to you. The question is, will you call on him? Will you call on Jesus for your salvation, or will you stubbornly try to establish the righteousness of your own? Which was the mistake that Paul's Jewish countrymen were making. It doesn't matter what kind of a background you have, what kind of a person, uh, whether you're a good person or not, the only way that you can be saved is to call on Jesus, and he will save those that call on him. You know, last week we looked at Romans chapter 9, and it showed the sovereignty of God. Um, this, this reality that God is, is big and powerful, and uh, he has the opportunity to, to choose to operate however he wants to. And in some ways, you could almost read that and come away thinking, like, does anything I do matter? Like, has God just ordained everything to work a certain way, and we're all just kind of pawns doing whatever with no control? And I can see how you might feel that way, but I, I, that's, that's not the picture that all of Scripture presents. Yes, it's true that God is sovereign and he can operate how he wants to. There is some aspect of di divine sovereignty and divine choice that plays into salvation that I don't fully understand. But what we see here in Romans 10 is the other side of the coin, that there's also this reality of human responsibility and that what you do in responding to the gospel and faith makes a difference as far as whether or not you are saved. There's a balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility that's difficult and maybe even impossible to understand. We see both these aspects together in Romans 9 and 10. And while I don't understand everything about the mystery of how God moves in a person's heart to bring them to faith in Christ, I don't need to. It's not my job to, to judge God or, or, or have to evaluate whether or not I like his methods. What I can understand is a simplicity that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so all I can do you, before you today is, is implore you to call on the name of the Lord to be saved and to put your faith and trust in Jesus that he would be your Lord and Savior so that you could be forgiven of sin. The gospel is not something that is meant to just be understood. It's something that's meant to be responded to. And so what's your response? If you haven't responded to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, then I encourage you as strongly as I can to do that today. And if you don't really know what that means, if you still have questions about that, that's okay. It's literally the biggest commitment you'll ever make in your life. Like you're making Jesus your Lord. If you want to talk with somebody about that, I would love to talk with you about it after the service. If you have a friend that brought you here today, I'm sure that they would love to talk with you about it. Find somebody. There'll be people praying uh, over here at the end of the service. Talk with one of them about what it means to actually call on the name of the Lord for salvation. Now, if you have done that, if you have called on Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then what I would encourage you to do in the strongest possible terms is to tell others about him. Let's read on and see what Paul has to say about this. Verse 14. <clears throat> How, then, will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all believed, obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, 
and, the end, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Okay, remember that before we can apply a passage properly, uh, in our time, we have to understand what it meant when it was initially written. Uh, many of you have probably heard that series of questions about, you know, how will they call on him and whom they haven't heard, that kind of thing. But then it almost kind of might get confusing for you again when you see that next part where Paul starts talking about Israel again. But we have to remember the context of all of Romans 9 through 11. Paul is trying to help us understand why we have this issue, that we have this wonderful gospel uh, that's given to God's people, yet God's people of the Old Testament, Israel, has by and large not responded to it. And so he's actually just continuing his argument here. Um, I, I want to try and help flesh out for you just kind of the problem and then the uh, answers to the problems and objections that happen throughout this. Because Paul kind of likes to write in that way. Or he'll make a statement, he'll anticipate an objection that you have, he'll give an answer to it, he'll, and then he'll, he'll kind of keep going in that rhythm. So the best I can do to summarize for you what we've seen th so far through Romans 9 and 10 is as follows. And I actually, if you want to take pictures of the screen, oh, the screen's gone, so you can't take pictures of the screen. But... Um, Anyway, I've fleshed this out in the best way I can to kind of easily summarize for you this idea of the question and answer that's going back and forth. So we started with the problem that most Jews are not saved, even though they're God's people and he gave them so many promises. The problem is, is God faithful to his word? The answer is yes, God is faithful. The promises given to Israel were not for all the descendants of Israel, but only for some of them. The objection to this, that's unjust that God would only choose to bless a certain portion of people. The answer to this, God is sovereign, and he can choose who to bless. Who is the creation to judge the creator? Objection. It's not fair that the Gentiles, who weren't even trying to be righteous before they heard about Jesus, have been made righteous through faith in him. But Israel, who was trying to follow God's law, is somehow not righteous, even though they were trying. Answer. The righteousness of God is so great that it can only be given to us through faith. And those who won't humble themselves before Christ in faith won't receive it. Objection. How could Israel even have this faith in Christ? Have they even heard about it? Answer. Yes, they have heard, but they've not responded in faith. That last objection there of has Israel even heard, that's what Paul is getting into in this section. Israel did hear the gospel. Christ was preached among them first. He was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead right outside of Jerusalem, their capital city. The gospel was first preached among them, but despite this, most of them did not come to faith in Christ. Instead, there were many more Gentiles who did. But we see in verse 9 that even with this kind of strange uh, happening of events where most of Israel rejected Jesus and many Gentiles have come to accept him, that there's still a purpose in this. We're not done with Romans 9 through 11, and I'm not going to get into chapter 11 today. Come back next week for that. But there is some foreshadowing even of, of chapter 11 that we see in verse 19 where Paul says, But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. All right, that's that little... That's foreshadowing for next week, uh, where Paul is trying to help us understand this, this problem, that there are so many Jews that have not come to salvation 
but there are many Gentiles that are. He's seeing God has a purpose even in how that's playing out. But I don't want to, so I don't want us to lose focus of our original context. But with that, I think hopefully you have a, a good understanding of what's going on in the big picture of Romans 9 through 11 as we've seen it through these first two chapters. With that being said, now that we have that understanding, I want to move towards what can we do about it? Like, like how can we apply what we've learned about Romans 9 and 10 in our lives today? And the first thing is just most simply trust in Jesus for your righteousness. And I, that bears repeating over and over again. Why? Because I've told you, there are so many people I've met that have grown up in church, church kids. Many people have told me they're Christians. Frankly, they are not trusting in Jesus for their righteousness. They are trusting in their own good works. And that's the exact same mistake that the Jews were making. Zeal without knowledge is no good. You need to realize that the only way you can be saved is through Christ. You, you can't trust in your good works. You can't trust in adherence to some other kind of religion. There is one way that God has made for us to be saved, and the offer is open to all, all who call on him. That's the great thing. It's not bound by your ethnicity or your location or anything like that. We're sitting here on the other side of the world from where the, most of these events happen, right, and worshiping Jesus. Christianity is not an American thing. It's not a white people thing. It's not a black people thing. It, it's... it's the, the truth of God about how he wants to bring all people to himself. But there's one way in which that happens, and that's through Jesus. Now, the other thing that, that I would say as a modern application for us is not just to, to trust in Jesus, but that we would share the gospel, right? We read this, uh, this, this sequence of how then, uh, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how are they here without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We see a, a sequence of events that Paul is helping us to understand here, right? We, we care about salvation. Paul is in anguish over the fact that his Jewish countrymen are not saved. But salvation requires calling on Christ. We have to respond in faith and call on Christ to save us. Now, calling on Christ requires what? Believing. That you have to actually believe. That, that he can save you. And, and believing requires hearing. How are you going to believe if you haven't heard the message? And, and hearing requires preaching. How in the world can you hear it unless someone goes and tells you? And preaching requires being sent. That we've got to be people that, that actually get up off our butts and, and go and, and proclaim the gospel. And may we be people that live as though we are sent. Jesus has already sent us. Look at this in John 20, 21. This is after his resurrection. He tells his disciples, says, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Another uh, form that, that's very similar to this is a post-resurrection uh, account as well. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is such an important commission. It's so imperative that we are faithful to it. And may we be people that are always finding ways to preach the gospel and to bring it before people so that they have the opportunity to actually hear and believe and call on the name of the Lord for salvation. 
And so how can we do this? I want to give you some practical points, right? Because I think that many of us probably want to be better at sharing the gospel and want, want to be more of a witness than we are. So here's some things that I would say. Uh, the, the first thing that you need to do if you really want to be a person that's sharing the gospel consistently is to pray for opportunities to share the gospel. And I know that sounds maybe more basic than what you want, but this is probably the most important out of any of the things that I'll tell you in, in terms of having more opportunities to share the gospel. God is, is faithful to hear the, the prayers of his people that are in line with his will. And I've found that, man, when, when I'm good about praying for opportunities to share the gospel— I usually am sharing the gospel a lot. And oftentimes God drops them into my lap. You know, th this is something that we, we need the Lord to give us opportunity and we need him to give us the boldness to take advantage of them when they come. Look at this from Ephesians 6, 18. This is Paul, the same guy that wrote letters, uh, the letter of the Romans. He wrote this one to the Ephesians. He says this, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication, that's making like re uh, prayers of request for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So he's writing these people in Ephesus. He's saying, hey, guys, I have a prayer request, right? How many of you guys are probably consistently asking people to pray for you uh, if, if you're involved in church life at all? Paul's asking for prayer. And what the prayer that he's asking for is boldness to share the gospel. What an awesome prayer request. And how cool is it that, that he needed that, right? He knew he needed boldness to share the gospel. The man is sitting in jail because he preaches the gospel. He says, for which I am an ambassador in chains. That means I, I'm preaching the gospel. I've got myself in chains because of it. And he's saying, I need your prayers that I would have boldness to proclaim this. Man, may we be people that pray that God would give us boldness to proclaim the gospel and that we'd be praying for each other as a church to have boldness to proclaim the gospel. And so not only do we need to be praying for opportunities, but then we need to be people that are putting ourselves in position to share the gospel, right? Like the position that you put yourself in will oftentimes dictate the kind of things that you get the opportunity to do. I've been getting uh, into playing chess recently. Um, I'm, I'm by no means like an expert chess player or anything, uh, but as I've learned the game some more from people that are really good at it, one of the things that I've learned is that you need to put your pieces in good position early. Like the beginning of a chess match is really kind of this fight for the center of the board to be able to get your pieces in good spots. Because there are so many different things that can happen in a chess match. It's like no person can possibly comprehend all of them or foresee what might happen. But what you can do is put your pieces in the best spots that you can to give you the opportunity for future success. And I think in many ways that there's a lot of parallel with that to, uh, to life. And it's the same with us in wanting to be evangelists. If you want to be uh, leading people to Christ, then start putting yourself in position to be able to share the gospel more consistently. Here's some examples of how you can do that. One, uh, read your Bible in public, okay? Now, th I'm not saying uh, this as a thing of, like, practice your righteousness before men. Jesus warns us against that. So, so don't do it as a thing of, like, I want to read my Bible so people think I'm holy. Uh, you still need to have a private devotional life that's just between you and God. But I think there's something to be said for going to a coffee shop, going to TUC, something like that, and just open up your Bible and having a quiet time there sometimes. Why? When people see you reading the word of God, they may actually come and want to have a conversation with you about that. And you might say, Grant, that doesn't actually happen. It does happen. Matter of fact, 
Uh, I was just talking to one of my friends before the service here today. Uh, in large part, he's here and he's a Christian now, partially because God used something like that. I was at the 86, and I was, I was playing a chess match against one of my friends that is really good. Um, and uh, my, my friend Jacob walks up, and, well, he wasn't my friend at the time. He was a total stranger at the time. And uh, he's is, is a fan of chess. So he's like, hey, can I play? So I let him play the guy that's really good. Um, and I just kind of sit off to the side and start reading my Bible. And as he sees that I'm reading my Bible, he says, oh, are you interested in theology? And we start to get into a conversation. He's not a Christian at this point. And we, we get into a conversation. We start to form a friendship. And, and not too much longer after that, God got a hold of him, changed his life, and he called upon the Lord for salvation. You never know what God might do in things like that, right? It was, it was something as simple as me opening up my Bible, put me in a position to be able to have a conversation with somebody that ultimately ended up leading to somebody coming to know Jesus. Like, how awesome is that? Right? That, that wasn't really from anything that I did. Like, that was just a product of being in the right position and, and praying and, and probably having people pray for me that, that I would get the opportunity to do things like that. Another thing you can do is talk about Jesus with your friends in public spaces, okay? Uh, I have a lot of conversations about Christ in public spaces like TUC and that kind of thing. And uh, every now and then someone will overhear my conversation and they'll want to come and talk. I've had that happen on several occasions. And uh, most of the time, the people that do that, they're not Christians. <laughs> they're, they're, a lot of the time, they're people that are disagreeing with what I'm saying. I remember one, one guy was a pretty staunch atheist. I was doing some evangelism, uh, I was sharing the gospel with somebody in TUC. This guy that was like a, a committed, like militant atheist might be too strong of a word, but uh, committed to his atheism, um, overheard what I was saying, and he wanted to come, and he interrupted our conversation to talk to the other guy and say, hey, I want you to know there's things other than what this guy is telling you. Um, and so anyway, after that conversation wrapped up, I went and talked to that guy. And we actually ended up forming a friendship. Unfortunately, as far as I know, he's still not a Christian. We've lost contact with each other at this point. Uh, but still, like, there was an opportunity just from being in a public space and somebody hearing the, the word of God uh, spoken about. Another opportunity, uh, another place to put yourself in position, worship in public. Um, this is why we do things sometimes like uh, the plunge, right? Where we just like do an outdoor worship service. Or I have friends that are more musical than me uh, that sometimes get together and they just like go do worship on Sigma Sigma or something like that. And God can use that to open up all sorts of opportunities where people hear that and they're attracted to wanting to come and, and, and find out what's going on. Uh, live as a person that just wants to bless people in some way. Like even if it's, even if it's small, right? Like if you're going through your life in a way where you're thinking about loving others, which we all want to think that we're really good people that care about others, but most of us have a hard time actually consciously trying to go through life where we love our neighbors, we love ourselves. If you do that, like just even small ways of blessing people, that, that can open up doors that might surprise you. This is the idea even behind the outreach table. Every week as H2O, we just set up a table and try and like give out hot chocolate or candy or whatever, cookies, different things to people sometimes. And we're just trying to be like a small blessing to people in, in some way. Why? Because we know that that can open up doors for bigger things. So be a person that, that I don't know, is, is willing to be generous with your money or give a ride to somebody who needs it or whatever. You, you never know what might happen. That, that, that person that needs a ride, like who knows what kind of conversation you might get into on the car ride there. 
Put yourself in spaces to meet new people, right? Uh, this is something I was always trying to intentionally do as a college student. Uh, I wasn't very interested in studying, but uh, sometimes I would make study groups just so that I'd have opportunities to get outside of class with my classmates. And uh, in that, like, we, are, we start talking about each other's lives. And you get the opportunity to share about what's most important in your life. I got to witness to, to several of my classmates through doing things like that. Um, play sports with people, right? Like, I, I love to play sports. It's something I naturally enjoy anyway. Uh, but part of the reason I like to do that is because it puts me into a community of people that have common interests. Uh, that, and as I form that relationship, it might open up doors to be able to share the gospel. And so as you continue to meet people, like, build strong relationships with people. Like, look for opportunities to be able to invest in the relationships that God's put in your life. That's true, of course, for believers, but also for people that don't know him. Like, just simple things, like, watch the Super Bowl together, or watch the Bengals win the AFC Championship next week or something. Like, just, just find spaces to, to share with people. Invite people into your community, too. Like, this is one of the blessings we have here as the church is that uh, we get to collectively witness about the Lord. So if you meet somebody that doesn't know Jesus, I want you to do the best you can to share with, with Jesus about them. But the cool thing is, if you start to introduce them to your friends that also love Jesus, now there's all those other people that also get to witness about Christ. And evangelism is usually a team effort. Like most of the people that I've seen come to know Jesus, it, it's usually because there are multiple people that are speaking truth into their lives. Um... Also, like, as you invest in these relationships, just try to, like, be a good listener. Always be listening to try and figure out, like, what's actually going on in your friends' lives and how you can bless them or help them in some way. Simply share the love of Christ with the way that you treat people and watch for the potential that that has to open doors about gospel conversation. And so all of that is just stuff about putting yourself in the right position. Finally, I'd like to talk about just creating explicit opportunities to actually share the gospel. And, and there's some ways that you can be very overt about this. I like, there's a lot of different ways. I'll just name a few. Uh, one of which is just do some street evangelism, or, or some people call it contact evangelism. Um, this is how I ended up growing a ton in my faith, actually, was through getting into a habit in my life of actually just going out and talking to strangers about Jesus. And uh, you might think, man, that's weird, or that's awkward, or that's uncomfortable. And it can be sometimes. Um, but most of the time, it's actually really good. And I noticed that I started to grow a ton in my faith and a ton in my boldness, a ton even in my understanding of the scriptures as I would go and, and share with strangers. And God would work through that sometimes. Like, the, I'm not saying most of the people that I've met that way have come to know Jesus, but have some of them? Yeah. And, and, so, and some of them are people that you end up forming relationships with that, that God ends up saving down the road. You never know what might come of this, but you know that as you go and start sharing the gospel with others, you're giving God the opportunity to move. Another thing, and if you're interested in that, by the way, like, I know there are a lot of people in our, our church that would love to, like, help train you with that. I know John and Trev and Ashley and, and myself uh, would, would be happy to go and help you with any of those kind of things. I know a lot of our student leaders the, sa the same way. Um, another thing you can do is go on a mission trip. Uh, we talked earlier about the spring break trips that are coming up. And specifically, if you want to be a person that's looking for more opportunities to just explicitly share the gospel, then I would challenge you to go on the Buffalo trip, okay? That Buffalo trip, a lot of what we're doing, we're going up there to try and start a new church. And with that, that means we're going to go up there and we're going to be trying to share the gospel with people a lot. And so what that week is going to look like is us just kind of 
uh, planting ourselves on that campus for a week and going and forming relationships, talking to people, getting into conversations, and sharing Christ. And, and man, what an awesome opportunity for you to be able to go and do that with your brothers and sisters. And guys, that can have a bigger impact than you probably think. I'll tell you why. People that had said yes to a trip like that, how many years ago? Over 10 years ago, uh, have had a huge hand in all of you guys sitting here right now. When, uh, when I was a sophomore at Bowling Green State University, we had a spring break trip to come do evangelism on the campus at the University of Cincinnati because this was a brand new church plant. And when I say church plant, that's almost too generous of a word because uh, like what we're sending out with Buffalo, we're sending a team there. Um, there was no team. There was like one guy that moved down here and he was trying to start a church. He's like a guy in his like mid to late 30s, I think, trying to start a church by himself here. It wasn't the original plan, but that's, not, that's what ended up work, how it ended up happening. And so up at Bowling Green, we're like, well, we need to go do some evangelism on campus and try and help this guy meet people. So there's a group of us from Bowling Green that come down. Keep in mind, this guy, Matt, who is his name, the original guy that planted this church, knows no, like there's zero connections. He doesn't have any uh, students that are a part. H2O doesn't exist. People don't even hardly know what that is. The idea of a church on a college campus, there are none that, that were here at the time. It was actually a pretty new idea even across the country. So <clears throat> this, um, we, we come down and we just start sharing the gospel and getting into conversations with people. And through that team's effort, we ended up finding one guy that was interested in what we were talking about that he was interested in this idea that we wanted to plant a church here on this campus. And so we hooked that guy, his name was Dave Minnick, we hooked him up with Matt, and they started to form a relationship. And Dave started inviting a couple of his friends to, to have a small Bible study with Matt. And so the group had grown to about four or five people by the summer. I came down here and interned in the summer, and guess what? We did more evangelism, more evangelism. And eventually, uh, like, like God heard our prayers as we were praying and he brought in a bunch of freshmen that wanted to be a part of this church that didn't exist yet. And it started to grow from there and it's become what is now H2O here today. But guys, if, if people from Bowling Green didn't say yes to that mission trip to go and share the gospel, who knows if we ever would have met Dave Minnick. And if we never met Dave Minnick, I don't know if H2O Cincinnati exists. Like this thing could have been dead in the water. So like, you just, you never know how God is going to work. But as we say yes to the way that he challenges us, we give him opportunities to do great things that are beyond what we may ever think. So all of the people that, that, that have been impacted by this church, many people that have come to know Christ and, and uh, grown in their, their devotion to him, all this kind of stuff, a lot of that traces back to people that said yes to going on that mission trip from Bowling Green to the University of Cincinnati. And so I would hope that a lot of you would consider uh, saying yes to going on a mission trip from Cincinnati to the University of Buffalo. Um, another thing that you can do to just create explicit opportunities to share the gospel is uh, make gospel appointments with your friends. And what I mean by this is simply uh, set aside a time to explicitly get together with a friend and say, hey, I want to talk with you about something that's actually really important in my life. Um, like, I, I don't know if you know this, like, I'm a Christian, it means a lot to me. I don't know where you are spiritually, but I would love to actually just kind of like sit down with you sometime soon, get coffee together, and just like talk about what you believe spiritually, and, and I'd love to share with you what I believe. Like just being forward like that and having time to set aside and get into a conversation with your friend. 
Maybe you, you guys have friends that you would love to do that with and you've just never known how to actually share with them about Jesus. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying that there's some solution to where you're never going to have to break through some barrier of fear or awkwardness, right? Like we live in a world that, that is opposed to the gospel in many ways. We, the, the scripture speaks of Satan as being a real entity, okay, that, that's actually trying to oppose us. We shouldn't expect that our efforts in evangelism are always just going to be a cakewalk. Setting up a time with your friend to actually sit down and share the gospel, I realize that can be intimidating. But it doesn't mean that it's not something you should do. And if you love your friend and care about them, that's all the more reason to do that. So I'd encourage you to consider that. And if that's something that you want to learn more about how to do, come talk to me or, or one of the other staff, and we'd love to try and help walk you through this. What I will say is, is do not let fear stop you from sharing the good news. And don't let uh, this idea that you're failing if everybody doesn't respond to you favorably, don't let that stop you either. Right? We actually read this in the text that there were a ton of the Jews rejected the gospel. Paul said that he was an ambassador in chains. The guy was kicked out of cities. He was put in prison. Uh, you know, Christians were being killed for sharing the gospel, all this kind of stuff. You think that they were having a 100% success rate? <laughs> Not even close. You think it was easy? You think that they didn't have fear? You think it wasn't awkward? How awkward is it for you, for you to go around and start telling people that you believe a man rose from the dead? Guys, the, our, our, our forefathers in the faith have pushed through the fear and awkwardness that they undoubtedly felt in sharing the gospel as well. And we, I am so thankful that they did. Because Jesus is the most important thing in my life. And, it, and how would I have called on him if I'd never heard? And how would I have heard if they hadn't been faithful to go and preach? And so may, may we not be a generation that drops the baton, okay? We've had people constantly and consistently, faithfully pass on the message of the gospel. And let us be people that do the same. Let us walk in the same footsteps of our, our ancestors in the faith, like Peter and, and Paul and many others after them that were faithful in carrying the torch of the gospel, we get to continue in that legacy because we understand that people need to hear about Jesus to be able to call on him for salvation. May we be people that have beautiful feet, that bring good news of good things. Let's pray. Um, God, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that... Um, you, you've spoken to us through your word today, God, and I know that um, there are different things that uh, people in this room may have needed to hear from you this morning, different ways maybe that people in this room need to respond to you this morning. Lord, for those that uh, don't know you, I, I pray that today would be the day, Lord, that they call on you for salvation. For, for anyone, Lord, maybe that's even just trusting in their works and trying to establish a righteousness by the law. Even if they're zealous, God, I pray that today would be the day that they let go of that, they repent of that, and that they come to, to have a righteousness by faith that you offer in Christ. And Lord, for, for, for those that know you, I just pray that we would respond, God, in, in being people... That, that carry the gospel, that have beautiful feet, that, that live as people that are sent, that, that go forth and preach so that people can hear, so that people can believe, so people can call and that people can be saved. 
God, you, you are so good. I'm thankful that we get to worship you in song here, and I pray that our hearts would be sincere in that. But Lord, I pray that our sincerity would be matched by the way that we live as we go forth from this place, God. I pray for our church, Lord, for the people in this room, Lord, I'm praying right now that you would give us opportunities this week to share the gospel. Lord, put us in spots. Uh, give us opportunities. Send people to us, Lord. I, I think you, you have sent people to me before that I've gotten to lead to you. And I know that you've done that with others too. And, and um, God, I, you, you, you can do so much. I think of how you even work behind the scenes that uh, I think of Cornelius in Acts 10 who uh, was, was devout, he was praying to you and you sent Peter to him. You sent Peter to him and his friends to hear the gospel. And God, I, I pray that you would send us and that you would send people to us. It doesn't matter to me, Lord, which way it happens. I just pray that uh, you'd help us to be great ambassadors for you. I love you a lot, Lord. You're worthy of all of our praise, and uh, we thank you for who you are. I pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.